First Chronicles chapter 1, we will begin reading in verse 1. Adam, Sheth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Medai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshach, and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarma, and the sons of Javan, Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim, the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Raama and Sabteca. And the sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. Mitzrayim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, of whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. The sons of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Meshech. And Arphaxad begat Shelah, and Shelah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, because in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Jokden begat Almadad and Sheleph, and Hazarmavith and Jera, Hadaram also, and Uzal, and Diklah, and Ebal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jokden. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nehor, Terah, Abram, the same is Abraham. Very early on in my, my uh, Christian life, uh, I was listening to um, a radio broadcast by, by R.C. Sproul, and he recommended... Uh, Jonathan Edwards' careful and strict inquiry into the common notion of the freedom of the will. I um, 
I, I thought so much of uh, Sproul that I thought, well, if this book has been so very meaningful to him, certainly it will be meaningful to me. And when I got the book and started to read, I, I remembered what he said about it, that it had deeply influenced him, not just in its subject matter, but in its method. Uh, it is it is certainly, with respect to method, very uh, careful and deliberate, um, logical and organized, to be sure. But one of the things that that impressed me, and although I I was a new Christian, I I had been around Christianity and Christian things my whole life. One of the things that struck me. And it's actually had to do with the text in Chronicles. I don't remember which one, but I remembered that Jonathan Edwards had cited a text in Chronicles as a proof text for a particular point that he was making, and then had um, given a brief exposition of the text. And I was amazed. I sat there and I thought, wow, who cites a proof text from uh, Chronicles? And uh, that was part of my early initial attraction to uh, Puritanism was I was I was uh, deeply impressed with the both the broad and the deep acquaintance with the Bible that it wasn't just Edwards as I started to read others I saw that in discussing this or that doctrinal matter or bit of practice. Uh, they might go anywhere in the Bible. And um, I found that very edifying, very attractive, because I felt like this um, this body of literature and these, these men, they are helping me to understand the Bible better. At least one of my great hopes from our, our studies in this genealogy is that it will help you um, read and understand the Bible better, read it with more understanding. And as I have said frequently, stop, uh, help you stop reading past things. It's amazing what happens when these names cease to be mere sounds and they become people, individuals or people groups, places, uh, about which you know at least a, a little something and hopefully know enough to know why other biblical writers would would bring them up. The chronicler has chosen to set his narrative in the broadest possible context. And I'm not going to I'm not going to review all of this. Um, I did uh, we did several lessons very early on on um, uh, biblical genealogies in general and how the chronicler uses them uh, in particular. One of the things that he is going to want to do is, um, is follow the people of God. Remember, I, I tried to make the point very early that the Genesis 3.15 prophecy is um, is broad and governing general context for everything that you're going to find. Um, 
the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And from from Adam down to Noah, he he traces the uh, seed of the woman as the families of Noah's sons branch out. He follows he follows them. Now, interestingly enough, early on, uh, the religious declension in the families of Japheth and Ham will be will be early and rapid. So here, there's at least some indication of the multiplication of the seed of the serpent in the earth unhappily. But we'll see later on in Chronicles, uh, when it comes to salvation, the, uh, the chronicler does have an eye to uh, salvation broadly applied. And of course, we know that God's saving attention was not limited to just one family, but ultimately would be extended to the descendants of uh, Japheth and, and Ham. But here, in, in coming to verse 17 and returning to Shem and his sons, we are coming again more narrowly to the thread of the seed of the woman. Uh, it will be, uh, Shem's family is going to adhere to the true religion. So true religion is going to be preserved in his family um, while the rest turn back and end up descending into the, into the darkness of, of uh, idolatry. So, so here we're, we're returning in our, in our thoughts to that main thread that uh, focused biblical interest in uh, the people of God and following them along. And with them, there is always the, uh, the promise of Messiah. The chronicler is also very interested in this, and he is uh, acutely interested in his genealogies in um, the descendants of David. Right? How, how are we going to locate Messiah in the vast ocean of humanity? So we are, at a, we are at a transition point in our uh, exposition. We are coming to the sons of Shem. And I wanted to spend this evening on Shem and reviewing something of his history, what we know about him from Scripture. And I'm going to structure this just a little bit different rather than um, maybe going through that history and, and saving doctrine and, and practice largely for the end. I'm simply going to intersplice it uh, as we go. So to get started, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Now in Genesis chapter 10, as you probably know, we have, we have the table of nations, which our chronicler is pretty evidently following, uh, not always absolutely, but for the most part, even, even verbatim. Now in chapter 11, you get the, you get the Babel event. We're going to come back to that in, uh, in some coming, uh, sermons. But, um, after that, you get a return to the genealogy of, 
of Shem, and it, it traces all the way out down to uh, Abraham, as our, as our chronicler has done. But pick up with me at, uh, at verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. So right away, we know that um, there is something that is very special about Shem. He had an experience that only seven other people in all of history had. Shem was one of eight people that got to see both worlds. The world as it was before the flood and uh, the world as it began to develop after the flood. And based on Shem's age, when the flood came, it looks like he was getting pretty close to 100. If you associate that with about 100, you, you won't be wrong. It's easy to remember. Um, so like Shem had a very large experience in the uh, antediluvian world. Now remember the description. He would have lived for the most part in the midst of uh, profound religious declension. If you if you can remember our former studies, if you go all the way back to Genesis four and five, we saw that that Cain was sent away, and so there was largely an independent development of uh, the the descendants of Seth, the seed of the woman, and the descendants of Cain, the seed of the serpent. Uh, Shem would have had large experience with the great crisis that came when those two lines intermarry in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, he would have known firsthand the effect and uh, the influence that it led to the almost universal ruin of religion. The text never specifies this, but it does appear that Noah... Um, well, we know that Noah walked with the Lord, and so it seems that unlike the rest of his line, unlike the rest of the sons of God, as they are called there, that he has he has kept himself separate. And so, um, so his three sons and all of their wives appear to have uh, largely kept themselves uh, separate. We know some things about that ancient world. We know that it was um, as religion devolved that um, it seemed that people's thoughts were only intent on, on wickedness all the time. We don't know the exact character of the religious decline. We just know that it, that it happened. And we know that it was a time of violence tyranny and oppression. It's interesting that that, that world, what, we're, what we know about it for sure in scripture and what things we might be able to puzzle together from, from some of the echoes that come from the most rem, uh, remote antiquity, that the, the pre-flood world is largely closed to us. Uh, but it wasn't closed to Father Shem. 
Also remember that um, that Father Shem would have been the inheritor of of true religion as it came down to that time. So he would have known um, the truth concerning the creation of the world in six days. Uh, he would have known the obligation of the Sabbath. He would have known the history and the results of the of the fall of our first parents. He would have known that first promise concerning Messiah and even some things about him that um, that he would suffer in his redeeming work, but that by his suffering he would overcome and that he would come into great glory. And as we, we did this before in, in several lessons, so I won't repeat all of it, but he would have been an heir of all of that theology, a conservator, and it would have been his uh, duty and responsibility as patriarch of the new world to pass that truth on uh, to his descendants, to his children. Um, now, as we go as we go on here in uh, verse eleven, we're going to learn that after the birth of um, Arphaxad, he's going to live another five hundred years. You can see that in in, uh, in verse eleven. So Shem is going to live to be. 600 years old and this is a, this is an important theological piece and component uh, based on biblical chronology we know that the earth is about 6,000 years old however for the first 2,500 years there is no written revelation but that doesn't mean that there isn't any verbal revelation from Adam down to the time of Moses. And again, if you associate Moses with about 1500 BC, so creation about 4000 BC, associate Moses with about 1500 BC, you, you won't be far off. During all of that time, the word of God, verbal revelation had been passed on um, orally by mouth. Maybe they wrote some things down. If, if they did, we don't have this uh, specific things, uh, perhaps the, the substance of them is captured in the writings of Moses. We don't know. But let me let me read to you something. Hopefully this makes clear to you. And maybe just to, to sketch the chronology, the, the age of the ancient patriarchs um, made the made the accurate passing on of uh, verbal revelation much easier. So, for example, after the the flood happens about fifteen hundred years after the creation of the world, but Adam himself is alive for a thousand years of that almost. So, about two thirds of that whole time, Adam is alive to give a firsthand account of uh, what had happened. And to make it all the way to the flood, you only need Methuselah, right? So Adam uh, overlapped with and lived a long time with Methuselah, and Methuselah will make it all the way to the flood. 
So it's 1,500 years, but with respect to the passing on of um, verbal rev revelation, we're really only looking at two generations. And it really wasn't such a large body of material, right? Well, Methuselah overlaps with Shem by 100 years. And then when Shem uh, enters into the new world, and, and sometimes I think we, we lose our, our sense of scale here, um, Shem is still alive. Uh, you know, whatever you do with the math, he is still alive well into Abraham's adulthood. So, and by that time we're, we're getting into um, um, what is pretty easily uh, recognized uh, history, right? So to get from, from Adam to Abraham with verbal revelation, you really only need Methuselah and Shem in between. But with the enlargement of the sacred deposit and the shortening of man's life, it became, it became necessary to... Um, uh, to write these things. Let me, um, uh, our confession of faith actually starts in this way, and, and hopefully um, those few considerations give you a deeper understanding of what the Westminster Divines are saying. Let me just read this first section to you. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So with the, the enlarging of the sacred deposit, obviously it, it gets harder to remember all of the things that have been uh, committed. And with the shortening of man's uh, uh, life, that, that information is having to be turned over much more frequently. And so there's, uh, you don't have the, the witness of the ancient fathers um, the way that you did, and that knowledge is having to be reduplicated over and over and over again, like making it many generations of copies from a from a computer or from a from a copier. And so it is said here that for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more certain establishment and comfort of the church. Um, against corrupting influences, the, the same has been committed wholly to writing. 
if you if you do a little reading in scholastic theology usually they'll use a couple of greek terms to do that i won't bore you with it but they'll talk about verbal revelation unwritten and then verbal revelation written and at this point in history and this was important in polemics against Roman Catholic theology, all that is left for us is the deposit written. So verbal, verbal revelation written. But before moving on from this, I, I just want to make one observation. Um, from the very beginning of the world, God has not only revealed himself in the things that he has made and their government, creation and providence. But, but God's works have always been attended by his word. And as Van Til uh, pointed out to us, God never did intend his world to be interpreted without his word. That, that, that's a very helpful thought in a lot of ways, but it but it's also very helpful in, in thinking about some particular problems. So for example, um, the witness of scientists to us is that, um, is that this universe appears to be older than what the Bible says that it is. And at least a, a partial answer to some of that is, well, of course it does. Because when Adam opened his eyes on the first day, he's not looking at a, a baby universe, but one that is fully developed. Uh, one that, to a person of experience, would have appeared to have a past, including his own body. So he had a, a male body, which under other circumstances would... Uh, would appear to have had a history, a past. He's not looking around at a field with seeds in the ground. He's looking at trees and bushes and shrubs and grasses, all fully grown and developed. He's not looking around at a bunch of embryos, but he's looking at fully developed animals. If he had gotten interested in uh, astronomy, uh, he might have learned things like it, it takes a million years for light to get from that star here or something like that. But he would have never made any of those mistakes because God's word was there, um, helping him to it rightly interpret the things that are around him. So, of course, he wouldn't have thought, he wouldn't have drawn the conclusion that, well, I'm a, I'm a 30-year-old man suffering from amnesia because I can't remember anything. He would know that in spite of the maturity of his body, uh, that he was only a day old. God is there and God is speaking to him. He would know that the, that the light was present from the first day, but that the luminary bodies were hung by the Lord on the fourth day for the supporting of that light but God wanted him to have light when he opened his eyes on his first night rather than having to wait for it and, and so on. But my point here is um, any attempt to 
interpret God's world and works apart from his word is going to run into error. And God never intended for his world to be interpreted apart from his word. There's a lot more that you can do with that idea, but it is an idea that I hope that you will uh, that you will put in your pocket and that you will carry with you. Now to return to uh, Shem's experience, uh, it is interesting that Shem and his and his three brothers, well, I mean they they lived a long time in the old world, uh, but they didn't they didn't have children so they're married but but no children um, they would have lived for what is that you know from our perspective well well past old age although they they are just just getting started at a hundred years uh, Sham would have been one of eight people to live through uh, the flood on the one hand that that marvelous display of God's saving work in Christ Jesus, how he hides his people away in that ark from the destructive storm, but also that frightful display of God's judgment against sin. What a powerful impression that must have made upon uh, Noah's family. Uh, we tend to think so very little of sin we we sin and we make light of it we make a jest of it uh, but how they must have trembled at it look at God's great anger against sin to to destroy the world of men in the way that he did now after after the flood the only other thing we're told specifically about Shem is that um, is that within two years' time after that flood, Arphaxad is born, and so he begins to he begins to have children. So he's not only a married man now, but but he is a father in the new world. Just a little bit about where his descendants went, and then we'll we'll resume. It'll be easier to tell Shem's story if we just first review where they went. So remember Japheth, Japheth's family headed north, so up into Asia Minor, uh, even up into, you know, what we would call Eastern Europe, Russia, Moscow area, and then westward into Europe, what are sometimes known as the, the Mediterranean coastlands, at least the northern coast, as it were. Then we looked at um, Ham, his descendants went down into Canaan, into Arabia, and then west into Africa. It's pretty easy for us to follow them into Egypt and a few countries south, Egypt and a few countries west. But it does appear that, um, that Africa was largely settled by the descendants of Ham. Shem, if you think about Mount Ararat between the Black and Caspian Seas as being the epicenter, they head largely eastward. So uh, think in terms of um, like 
Mesopotamia, um, Assyria was the great power in northern Mesopotamia early on, and then moving south and east to uh, Babylon and on down to the Persian Gulf. We're going to find some mixture of them in uh, in Arabia with with descendants of of Ham, but they're they're uh, the Shemites largely moving eastward from from the epicenter. And interestingly enough, when you think of Assyria and particularly Babylon in the New World, Babylon will be famous as being uh, one. It's going to be the place of the Babel event. We're going to talk about that in uh, in coming in coming lessons, maybe as early as next week. I'll just have to try to figure out how to order it. But um, but also it's called the mother of harlotries, that is idolatries. So Babylon is a very important place with respect to the manifestation of idolatrous religious declension in the New World. And interestingly enough, that happens in Shemite uh, territory. Um, so go back with me. We have, we're going forward in the story, but actually going back. Um, turn back with me to, to Genesis chapter 9. We'll pick up reading in verse 18. We don't know exactly how long this is after after the flood. Um, it does look like, uh, you know, a little bit of time, enough time for for Ham to have a son. Maybe our Fixad is born already. Maybe not. It's hard to say. But Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. You'll, you'll know the, the text well. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. So I just want to point out a couple of things here. So um, if you remember our work in this before, uh, what what Noah does here is is sad. It's it's not impressive. Interpreters have have um, uh, have tried to do everything in their power to mitigate Noah's drunkenness but at the end of the day ultimately it, it can't be can't be fully excused in his in his tent in his drunkenness he uncovers himself um, further dishonoring 
himself. So he's both drunk and uncovered. Now, twice in this brief narrative, Ham is expressly called the father of Canaan, which is very important for the prophecy that's getting ready to come. And remember, authors can do whatever they want, uh, given the the vast amounts of time that Moses is covering, all things considered, he it's not a lot of words for the amount of years that are being covered here in the early chapters of Genesis. So when he when he uses words, uh, you can be sure that they are important. And twice he he makes sure that we remember that Ham is the is the father of Canaan. That's going to be very important. Um, Ham, all all we're told is that he makes a display to the rest of the family of Father Noah's shame. But Shem and Japheth, far from concurring, will will cover their father's shame, uh, which is certainly a a bright and, and shining example to us. Now, when Noah wakes up, he, he knows he has somehow become acquainted with what has happened. And that becomes the occasion of this prophecy. And that's an important thing to remember. These words are not, are not personal vengeance from Noah, but rather what has just happened has become, the, become an occasion for a prophecy. And it's, uh, it's an occasion that is certainly suited to the prophecy with respect to the uh, to the families that are involved, and so the uh, the prophecy here, and he said, "Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren." That 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 bit of the prophecy is all the more remarkable because that's largely what actually happened. Because the Israelites didn't obey, they went in there with a command and a warrant to cut these nations off, the Canaanite nations off. But they didn't actually do that. Well, some, a little bit, but they didn't complete the work. And so largely the remnants of these nations were were subjugated and put to tribute rather than cut off. And so you see the accuracy of the, the prophecy here uh, proleptically. Verse 26, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now in the cursing of Canaan, most interpreters are wanting to think that Canaan was somehow involved in the sin that could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, it would be enough for a father, Ham, enough of a chastisement for a father to hear that um, that ruin is coming to his descendants. So I don't think there's any necessity in the text that, that Canaan was involved in the sin of his father at all. And ultimately, the Canaanites, when they are cut off and judged, in Joshua's invasion, that's not because of what Ham does here or 
anything that Canaan ever did as far as we can tell, but it but it has to do with their own sins. You remember in Genesis 15, um, God tells Abraham that he won't give him any of the land, that that land had been given to, to Canaan, to Canaan and that the iniquity of the Amalekites was not yet full so he won't give it to Abraham yet but it is when their iniquity is full as displayed in Leviticus 18 that finally warrant is given for uh, for the judgment so we wouldn't necessarily want to say in any sort of simplistic way that the event here causes the later later judgment that that doesn't do any sort of justice to the fullness of the of the biblical picture but it is a suitable occasion and it would be quite a, a chastisement for ham to have this future displayed to him that ultimately uh, uh, ruin is going to be coming upon uh, at least a portion of his descendants he doesn't appear to be that he's told when that's coming just that it is and so there is a, a, a measure of chastisement in it for, for Ham. Now, more specifically, and as I said, in, in Chronicles, in coming back to Shem, we're focusing again on the seed of the woman uh, coming down through uh, the family through time and the messianic promises coming with it. And I want you to notice that when, when Japheth is blessed, the first blessing that is pronounced concerning him is enlargement, which geographically is true. He appears to have been, at least initially, the inheritor of the largest uh, territory geographically. Um, so... You get that emphasis in Japheth, but you don't get any similar sort of emphasis with Shem, but rather uh, a blessing of God as Shem's God. This is, this is very interesting language because this is the language of covenant. Uh, covenants can be quite elaborate and, you know, God's covenant with his people is expressed in a great many words in the Bible, but its most simple reduction is, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that's the language that is used here. And it's interestingly enough, in this instance, it is only used of Shem and it's used of Shem first. So two important things appear to be happening here and subsequent events um, if we use those events to interpret prophecy, this this is there's little reason to doubt this, although it's a, the prophecy is in very very few words. But um, Shem's family is going to be the the conservator ultimately of true religion. They all had the responsibility, but prophetically, it's going to be Shem's family that does that. And we'll, we'll talk about this. We don't know a lot about the succeeding generations, but um, uh, Eber's family appears to be the fountainhead of the Hebrews. Um, it does appear that Hebrew was the original language of humanity. So the, the conservators of 
the true narrative in the in the true language and that's important because the early chapters of Genesis are full of wordplay that only uh, wordplay that only works in Hebrew there's no other known language in which it works um, and then ultimately even as the light of true religion is becoming dim among the sons of Shem it's going to be uh, revived by God's power in the family of Abraham and kept uh, by God's power in in his family um, through through ages so so um, this is this is following this the seed of the woman and I'll come to the messianic promise in just a moment but just just a couple of observations hopefully useful for for children in the church it is a wonderful thing and a a blessing to have Christian parents and grandparents and hopefully great-grandparents it is a a wonderful thing and a blessed thing um, when you call upon God to be able to call upon him as the God of your fathers as we see so frequently done uh, in the scripture and not just the not just the biblical fathers but you know your immediate fathers as we as we study the scriptures we see that it is that that um, not only do the children of believers come within the visible administration of the covenant of grace and become members of the of the visible church but it is also what you might call God's normal method to work salvation uh, through families and to extend it through families so these are these are great blessings. These are hopeful things concerning our children, but um, but you children ought to value the fact that you are born into a a Christian heritage. You grow up with the Bible read to you and the gospel uh, ringing in your ears. Uh, hopefully, uh, Christian nurture and discipline. Uh, every every day and these things ought to be counted as uh, treasures to you and if you have these things you, you ought to give thanks to God for them because of course you didn't do anything to uh, deserve them or earn them of course how could you you were simply born into them by God's kind providence to you but for those of you that are first-generation believers in your family, as far as you know, you have occasion to marvel, but for another reason. Uh, the scripture would describe you as a, as a brand plucked from the fire. The trajectory of things looked like it was on its way to destruction, and yet uh, the Lord plucked you out. Or maybe to borrow Paul's image, you were... You were a wild branch, but the Lord was pleased to engraft you uh, into the stock of of the people of God, and that is, that that's a different blessing, but it's another uh, blessing in its own right, and something uh, to marvel at, and something for which we ought to give thanks. And even as the Bible so persistently keeps an eye on the on the 
succession of true religion down through the, the generations, uh, if we are to be faithful, we ought to observe it not only in the Bible, but, uh, but in our own families. Also, this is always expressed in uh, language of covenant. Uh, it is altogether appropriate for our um, for our families to be self-consciously and expressly covenanted uh, to the Lord. Uh, messianic promise also comes down into. Uh, the family of Shem. And remember one of the things that the, that the genealogies do in, in following the people of God along, what keeps happening because Messiah is four millennia removed from the initial promise is that the family keeps branching out and widening, which would make finding Messiah difficult, except the Lord keeps narrowing the funnel over and over again to help us find him. So first he's promised to Eve, but then the family starts expanding. Then it has to be Noah and his family, right? Well, it comes down through Seth's line to Noah and his family. But Noah's got three sons, and now it's being uh, designated to Shem's family in particular. Shem's family is going to multiply. It's going to be designated to Abraham's family in particular. Abraham's going to end up having a bunch of kids, but Isaac's family in particular, um, not Esau, but Jacob. Jacob is going to have 12 sons. They're all going to be part of the church, thanks be to God. But in Genesis 49, the Messianic promise specifically passes into the house of Judah. Judah begins to multiply beyond imagination and the promise passes into the family of David and into the line of the kings. And the chronicler is going to do us a service in his genealogies that no one else does. Um, he follows the line of the kings um, genealogically much further than any other New Testament work and helps us tie in uh, to the genealogies in Matthew and, uh, and Luke better. So um, messianic promise. And just, re just remember this. I hope you'll think much upon this, although I'm not going to say a lot of words. It's, it's worth a lot of thought. True religion has always been messianic religion. And we have all been blessed with Bibles. We have all been blessed with the uh, preaching of the Messiah to us. Um, but should we neglect this gospel that is ringing in our ears, as, as Paul says to the Hebrews, how, how are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There will not be any, any escape for us, but rather a great condemnation. So let us uh, apply this by believing upon Messiah, promised from the very most ancient times, but now fully displayed to us uh, in all of the scriptures displayed so that we might uh, believe upon him to the saving of our souls. And this belief is not presented as a, as a moral option. We are, we are commanded to believe. 
it is a morally qualified offer uh, and when it's rejected it is only rejected with wickedness right to go on in this in this remarkable prophecy um, as we've already said just looking at the at the case of Israel Canaan is largely going to be made subject and servant to him but it will happen with Japheth's descendants as well when Alexander the Great comes through there he will subject them to the Grecia and Japhethites when the Romans come through there Canaan will be subject to the Roman Japhethites but all Japhethites but also interestingly enough the first promise to Japheth appears to be for his uh, geographical enlargement but the second one appears and it's not a lot of words but it appears to be a spiritual promise that um, at some point Shem would largely vacate the tent the tents of true religion and that Japheth would come to inhabit and of course we know that that's the very thing that is happening at the time of the New Testament the descendants of Abraham are largely walking away from um, Jesus and the Japhethites first and early are are pouring in and being and being converted by um, by the hundreds of thousands in a in a most remarkable uh, fashion now so just a little bit about about Shem to conclude here and some of the things that he would have witnessed in his days um, Shem would still be what is for him comparatively young when the Babel event happens he's only about 200 years old at that point he would have seen the great decline into idolatry in those in those regions he would have seen the depredations of Nimrod in those very regions we'll come back to that I think next week um, and uh, he would have lived all the way to the time where he would have seen uh, uh, true religion um, gloriously revived in Abraham did he know about it I wonder and I, I don't there's no way there's no way to know but if he had lived to see um, what happens with Abraham and that the sacred deposit of revelation is so much enlarged and extended under Abraham oh how he must have rejoiced to see that day if if he had been around geographically to see it because he's still in the world when that is uh, happening uh, did he know I, I don't know this is what we know about about um, uh, Shem from history and next week we'll, we'll talk about uh, what other things might be indicated concerning uh, concerning him and the in the Christian humoristic tradition let us pray together